So if you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to continue our study through the book of John. As we have been moving through John at a snail's pace. (laughs) Uh, What's that other animal? Or sloth, yeah. Well, not slothfully moving through John, that just wouldn't make sense. But we've been moving slowly but thoroughly through the book of John, learning as we go, applying these things, hopefully, as we go. But we're in John chapter 20, picking up at verse 23, where we left off uh, last week. Now, some of you may remember what would be one of the greatest movies of all time. Greatest movies of all time. And already you guys are going through your head, oh, what would that be? What that? For me, one of the greatest movies of all time would have had to have been, still is, The Princess Bride. Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) Amen. The Princess Bride, awesome movie. (laughs) And it's one of my favorites for lots of reasons. If you have never seen that movie, I I wouldn't recommend today because it's a beautiful day outside. Go do something outside. But tonight, rent that movie and watch it. It's such an encouraging, uplifting movie. But for me, there's so many one-liners in that movie. It's just, oh, man, they just come one right after another. Love it for that reason. There's the scene, you guys probably remember, where Buttercup and Wesley, if you haven't seen the movie, you'll get that later, but Buttercup and Wesley, the two main characters here, they're entering into the fire swamp. The fire swamp, yeah. And Buttercup says to Wesley, we'll never survive. And Wesley responds, nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. (laughs) Classic, classic line. The classic picture of pessimism versus optimism, right? Doubt versus belief. Unbelieving versus believing. You know, it's one of Benjamin Franklin's famous quotes. When in doubt, don't. We should remember that, shouldn't we? When in doubt, don't, especially when it comes to the things of the Lord, right? We saw last week as we left off at verse 23, although we didn't actually look at verse 23, I read it, but we never got there. But in summary of last week, we saw the disciples, they're gathered together. This is after uh, the resurrection, and they're gathered together. Uh, They're behind closed doors. We know that they were locked for fear of the Jews, the text said. It's the first day of the week. It's evening. The disciples and the others are gathered together there. And Jesus comes and stood among them and says what? Peace be with you. We talked about that at length last week. Jesus saying peace be with you. When Jesus grants peace, peace happens, doesn't it? He's the ultimate in peace. He quiets the winds and the waves that way, doesn't he? Uh, I've mentioned, I think, before, but years ago there was a song, a Christian song, and the chorus was, sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. So he brings peace one way or the other. Peace be with you, he says. He shows them his hands and his side. The text says that they were glad to see him. He said to them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then we talked at length also about he breathed 
into them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's at that point in time, the first time, they received the Holy Spirit of God in them. Now for those that maybe have taught in the past or maybe you've thought yourself that initially the disciples, the 11, were the only ones at that time to receive the Holy Spirit, then we're not looking at God's word uh, all together because in, in the book of Luke, we even looked at that last week where they were gathered together and there were others there. It wasn't just the 11. Now, who were the others? Well, we don't, we don't really know for sure. But it would certainly make sense that at least the women who were at the cross, the women who went to the tomb, they were possibly there. We don't know for certain, but I think it would be uh, safe to assume that. But of the disciples that were gathered there, the followers of Christ, those that were gathered in that place, Jesus breathed into them his Holy Spirit because he had a work for them to do, didn't he? They were going to have his Holy Spirit now present in their lives because he wasn't going to be there physically anymore. As long as he was there physically with them, really the Holy Spirit wasn't necessary, right? God was already there in person with them. Now he's leaving, and he had promised them he was going to send them a helper. So the helper is there. He's in them. And he says in verse 23, as we look at our text today, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are, they are retained. Now, if you just take that verse and set it out there by itself and read it, you just, what is going on there? That doesn't seem to line up with Scripture as a whole at all. Forgiving sins, retaining sins, the disciples who he has just breathed his Holy Spirit into. What, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, see this verse as two different statements, two different responses, if you will, two different outcomes. The verse is not to be interpreted as to mean that Jesus gave to this select group of disciples the right to forgive sins and let people into heaven. That's not what go, what's going on at all. Uh, you remember in Mark 2, we have the story of the paralytic man being healed where some of his friends, his, his bros, they brought him to Jesus because they knew that Jesus had been healing people. They thought there, there was this time when he could possibly do that. They were coming before him. They were uh, curious. They were anxious. They were frazzled, if you will frazzled by all that had been going on. It's, you could even use the word aglet if you wanted to, because that's what that means. You know, the, on your shoelaces, right on the ends, there's a little plastic thing or the little metal thing. It's called an aglet. And if, you have, if that's not there, what happens? It frazzles. There wasn't anything there to hold it together. Jesus does that for all of us, doesn't he? So they come to him, they're frazzled, and they want to see if Jesus can heal uh, this guy. Jesus says to the man, what? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now we know from that story that some of the religious leaders nearby heard this and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, Jesus being God, he could do that, couldn't he? We know that. But they were absolutely right in saying what they did. They were correct in saying that who can forgive sins but God alone? Because that's the only place it can come from. So it means that his disciples, them and us today, we are sent out 
we don't provide forgiveness, do we? We can forgive each other, but we can't forgive sins. But we proclaim forgiveness. We communicate the truth of forgiveness. So if we come across the one who says, well, I just don't, I don't feel forgiven. Well, it would be our responsibility then as believers, as his disciples, to say to them, hey, according to the word of God, if you open your heart to Jesus Christ and believe in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, your sins are forgiven. So that, that covers that first statement as we look at that, that first verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. It's not us forgiving them. It's Jesus Christ forgiving them. We're just pointing them to him. So we just communicate the truth that Jesus has already done the work for their sins to be forgiven. In the second statement, Jesus refers to retaining sins. So conversely to the one who says, well, I don't need Jesus Christ. I'm into meditation myself or new age thought or I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. In that case, we can say in all truth, well, then your sins are not forgiven you. You haven't been forgiven of your sins because Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. So we're just communicating the message, aren't we? We're communicating about the forgiveness. We're communicating about sins being retained, not forgiven. And Jesus, in this verse, is charging his disciples and us with the responsibility of communicating both of these statements to others. We communicate the truth, don't we? But he's in charge of the results. <laughs> we just tell them what he has told us to say. Guys, we can probably relate to that, being married, right? We just communicate what it is we're told to say. <laughs> Not always. We mess up sometimes, don't we, ladies? But we try. You know, we really do try. So it's really two very simple statements. If they accept Jesus, their sins are forgiven, and if they don't accept Jesus... Their sins are retained. So use that as you're looking at that verse, as you're trying to interpret that verse or share that verse with someone else. It's the truth of the gospel, right? Sins forgiven. Verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. We talked about that last week as well. Initially, Thomas wasn't there. He was there when Mary came back from the tomb and told the disciples. But sometime in the course of the day, Thomas checked out. It was just the ten that were there then. Jesus comes. Peace be with you. Jesus leaves. Thomas comes back. And the guys start telling him what, what took place. Thomas here in this verse is referred to the twin. Other translations say Didymus. So why does John refer to him as the twin? Uh, it doesn't take a real scholar to figure that one out, I don't think. Obviously, he was a twin. Thomas and Didymus in, in both Aramaic and in Greek mean twin. So he was obviously a twin. Who was the other twin? 
We don't know. Scripture doesn't reveal that to us. But practically, as believers, we could put ourselves in that position, couldn't we? We see Thomas. We see how Thomas reacts and responds to certain situations. And we call him Doubting Thomas just like everybody else. But yet, we could insert our own name in there, couldn't we? Doubting Jim, Doubting John. Doubting Sveta. I mean, it, it could go on and on and on the list because we all have doubts at times, right? So in that respect, we don't have the biblical account of who Thomas's real brother or twin was, but we can certainly relate to that, couldn't we? We could say, well, I could be Thomas's twin just the way I act sometimes. So doubting, being a doubter, as we see in the life of Thomas, we can understand that because we have doubts ourselves sometimes. It's due to our lacking faith, our lacking belief. We can and we should be able to relate to Thomas in that way, in our doubt, in our unbelief. But yet it's, it's somewhere, somewhat uh, unfair to Thomas to give him that title. He didn't always react that way. In John chapter 11, when we went through that, we saw Jesus telling the disciples... Lazarus is dead. There had been that discussion amongst them. Well, he's just sleeping. And Jesus made it very clear. He wanted to uh, communicate to them what was really going on. So he says, Lazarus is dead. Pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty clear for them to understand. But in that, in John eleven sixteen, 16, Thomas responds this way. Then Thomas, who is called the twin... Everybody knows he's a twin. They keep communicating that. He says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They didn't know the circumstances surrounding Lazarus' death. Maybe he had been persecuted or killed by someone. They didn't really know, the disciples, but he knew that he was dead. And Thomas says what? Let us go that we may die with him. Doesn't sound like a man who's Scaredy cat, does it? It sounds like a man of courage in that. Hey, let's go. We'll die with him. Then in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he is leaving to go and prepare a place for them. And Jesus also says to them, where I go you know and the way you know. Thomas responds with, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? That didn't necessarily sound like doubt and unbelief. It sounded more inquisitive, didn't it? He was asking a question. Lord, I need further explanation. So I, I think the title of doubter, Doubting Thomas is, is kind of a ripoff for Thomas in some ways, although we know that he did doubt. But I think in these verses, these other verses in John that we looked at, we see a man who was courageous and spiritual-minded, wanting to know the truth, not ashamed to ask questions, which is where we all should be as well. But as we look at the text today, we're going to see what Thomas really struggles with is not doubt, but rather unbelief. Let's look at the text, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print uh, print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
So Thomas here is stating his case before the disciples. They have been telling him, hey, the Lord came. The Lord came this particular day and spent some time with us, said peace to you, breathed into us the Holy Spirit. I think all those things were being communicated to Thomas. He was kind of odd man out, if you will, because he wasn't there. So he stayed in case. I'm, I got to have proof, guys. I got to see it and experience it for myself. And here are the requirements for that. I need to be able to see his hands pierced, stick my finger in there. I need to see his, his side pierced and stick my hand in there. Verse 26 says, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Now think about that. They've been telling you all this stuff that happens, and that Jesus actually showed up. And after eight days, <laughs> waiting for eight days for something. We don't like to wait eight hours, do we, a lot of times. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. So Thomas gets to wait eight days. This whole waiting game going on. I hate waiting. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there, let you guys process it how you will, but I literally hate to wait. There's an oxymoron known as fast food. My experience is there is no such thing as fast food. You know, even with a microwave, that's, you're looking at the, that's going to take two minutes. <laughs> Hasn't our technology got to the point where we can just, <laughs> done, you know, be great. Drive through. Freddy's. How many of you like Freddy's? Oh, Freddy's. <laughs> Freddy's is good. But if you go through Freddy's in the drive-thru, there's still a certain amount of time that you have to wait. You know, you pull around, oh, cars in front of me. What are these people doing with their time, you know? <laughs> we don't like to wait, do we? You think about it when, back when we were little kids at Christmas time. I don't know what kind of families you guys come from, but Tradition in our house was you got to wait till Christmas morning. <sighs> Why? They're already here. <laughs> Why can't I just get them now and enjoy them the rest of the night? Sleep in, you know, whatever. Now you got to wait. And we know that from that point forward. <laughs> this past week I had to renew the, the sticker on Chris's license plates. So I drive over to Greeley not thinking that it's April the 30th, last day of the month, last afternoon of the month. <laughs> so I, I get in there, I send Chris a text, arg. <laughs> what? <laughs> you didn't know where I was, I guess, or forgot. said, 42 people in line in front of me. And only one person at the desk. Because the other two were on lunch break. Okay? Probably waiting in line at some drive through <laughs> to get their food. I waited and I waited. I hate to wait. Are you guys with? Can I get an amen? Do we hate to wait? Can you imagine Thomas in this scenario? Everybody there is telling him all this wonderful stuff that happened. 
and he didn't get to experience it. And one day goes by, and two days goes by, and three days goes by. After eight days, So after these eight days, Jesus comes to them again with the same message. Peace to you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So we can see in this verse that the very things that Thomas required for him to believe were the very things that Jesus asked him to do. They lined up perfectly. The exact things that Thomas asked for, Jesus said, do. Perfect. 100% met that need that Thomas was saying. It wasn't going to leave room for any doubt or unbelief whatsoever, was it? Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and Jesus said, Hey, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Thomas said, unless I put my hand into his side, Jesus says, reach your hand here and put it in my side. Imagine if you were Thomas. Man, he knew exactly what I was asking for. The very things that Thomas stated that he required for proof is the exact proof that Jesus provided. But notice also in verse 25 what Thomas says Unless I have these proofs, at the end of that verse he says, I will not believe. These are the proofs that I have to have or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to believe. Basically, unless these things meet my criteria, I will not believe. Isn't that true in so many circles today? That unless this, 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 or this comes to pass, or unless I see this, I won't believe. Time and time again, as it comes up over the course of their lives, they come up with every excuse in the world. I will not believe. We know that because most of us come from that background as well, don't we? Every one of us in here, at some point in time in our lives, didn't believe, right? And then Jesus came in, impressed upon us, showed us through the power of the Holy Spirit or whatever, what it was we needed to see so that we would turn our lives over to him. We get that. But we also know that there are those out there that still don't. They're still in that place somewhat of Thomas. And look at all the things that Thomas had been a part of, all the things that he had seen. So it wasn't so much that he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. Right now, what he's struggling with is what? He doesn't believe he's alive, does he? The same guy <laughs> that early on with Lazarus that was there and saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, you'd think that would even come in. Wait a minute. He did that with Lazarus. Jesus meets the criteria perfectly and then challenges Thomas with, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving but be believing we refer to him as doubting thomas when the correct nickname for him based on this verse should be what unbelieving thomas that's what jesus is saying to him don't be unbelieving thomas be believing thomas 
Jesus didn't rebuke him for his doubts. Jesus rebuked him for what? His unbelief. Think about this. Doubt can be an intellectual problem. We want to believe, but we're overwhelmed by problems and questions. That's the scenario. Unbelief is a moral problem. We simply will not or refuse to believe. I'm not going to believe. How do we know this was the case with Thomas? Jesus said so. (laughs) That's all the proof I need. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And what was it that Thomas would not believe? Well, the reports of all the other disciples and everyone that was there that Jesus was alive, even though the other disciples kept telling them what they had seen and heard, he refused to believe until it was based on his own terms, right? So after eight days, after eight days of the other disciples telling him, sharing with him, trying to convince him, you ever have somebody like that, a friend that's trying to talk you into something, trying to convince you about a particular thing? I think I shared this maybe one time before, but it was, I was in line at the grocery store and this older couple in front of us, this has been a few years ago, and you could see the older gentleman kind of looking at all the, the wonderful magazines that are available right there by the checkout counter. <laughs> and he says to his wife, I, I hear this, and he says to his wife, what's all this stuff about Michael Jackson? She turns to him and goes, well, he died. And he said, when? Crack me up. I just, where have you been? How can you not have heard this, that Michael Jackson died? Now, I'm not, nothing against Michael Jackson here, but what I'm saying is, is that sometimes we're oblivious, aren't we? Or we refuse to believe that which is sharing with us. Many witnesses, the testimony of many, and we still refuse to believe it. And it's truth. And the days went on after eight days. I think by the eighth day, Thomas even believed less. Yeah, right. It's not going to happen. There's no way. You guys have been saying this for seven days, like it's going to happen today, you know. But after eight days, Jesus comes and presents to Thomas the very thing that he asked for, the very truth of what he required. And Jesus lovingly says, Thomas, Thomas, stop your not believing and now be believing. The difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe that. Unbelief says, I won't believe that. It's interesting here, too, that John doesn't record that Thomas actually touched Jesus' hands or his side, does he? Jesus, here they are available. Do what you ask for. But it's as though seeing him and hearing him was enough. Thomas, just to see him and hear, hear him speak was enough for him. We saw that at the tomb, right, with Mary. He spoke Mary's name, and Mary saw and believed. For us, we, we don't see him physically either, but we should be hearing him all the time in our lives. As he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, as he speaks to us through his word, as he speaks to us through other believers, Because if Thomas would have listened and learned from the others, he would have seen that it was the truth, and he does eventually. So our believing for us 
should be established in our hearing. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's why here at Calvary Chapel we put such a strong emphasis, the utmost emphasis on teaching through the word of God, verse by verse. Because we want the full counsel of God's word, everything that God has for us in his word, if it's all 100% truth, which we know that it is, then we can benefit from all of it, can't we? Every bit of it, from Genesis to the maps, is beneficial to us because it is God's word and it is truth. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we listen to Grace FM throughout our day and we hear pastors teaching us over the airwaves, there's so much benefit in that for us, isn't it? And as we come here on Wednesday night, as we come here on Sunday morning, as the ladies meet on Tuesdays, as we meet for discipleship on Thursdays, all the things that we have going on with a focus on the Word of God by hearing, it grows our faith, it grows our believing, doesn't it? Thomas recognizes Jesus for who he is. In verse 28 he says, My Lord and my God. My Lord, my God. It's a proclamation by Thomas that Jesus is God and also that Jesus is Lord in the life of Thomas. It's personal. It's not just a statement of fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. He says, my Lord and my God. It's personal. A personal statement of Thomas belonging to Jesus. A personal statement of us belonging to Jesus. It's a fulfillment of what we looked at in our study on Resurrection Sunday. Again, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 